This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. What are we going to be eating and drinking in 10 years? What shape will the seasons take for our children and grandchildren's generation? Welcome to Hardcore. From Heritage Radio Network, I'm Hannah Forden. In our season two finale, we're once again looking towards the future. Cider is a beverage that is full of potential when it comes to cultural significance, culinary possibilities, and so much more. And I'm excited to share some new endeavors and innovations. But first, we have to think a bit about the future of the environment. As we talked about in the first episode of this season, it all comes back to the land. As an agricultural beverage that is in many cases made by the folks who farm the trees and pick the apples, it is a useful cipher through which we can look at climate change. In the years since we made the first season of Hardcore, developments have continued in the field of agricultural research aimed at making apples that can thrive in a warming climate. Greg Peck, Associate Professor of Horticulture at Cornell University, is at the forefront of this work. So our apples that we eat, right, are Malus domestica, and it's actually Malus ex domestica, right? The X stands for hybrid. So our domesticated apples are um, actually hybrids of two main species, Malus uh, uh, severcii, which is from uh, what is now Kazakhstan region, and then Malus silvestris, which is the European crab apple. And so uh, Malus severcii was brought into Europe uh, along the Silk Road uh, many, many uh, centuries ago, and through hybridization and then selection, human selection, we have the modern or domesticated apple. So it already has a, um, a pretty uh, mixed genetics, right? Because it's a hybrid, a fairly recent hybridization event of two different species. And then if you like were to Google how many different apple varieties are, the number 7,000 often pops up. But in fact, it's probably 20,000 or more, really. We don't even know how many. There's been a lot that people hey, have a backyard tree. I gave it a name. And um, and then after that tree dies, it's gone. And so uh, and then there's also varieties that are locally, regionally grown. And um, eventually those can die off as well. So um, there's a lot of genetics in the malice germplasm, both in the domesticated apple as well as species, or uh, depending on which taxonomist you're uh, listening to, there's somewhere between 25 and 35 different malice species, so different species within the apple genus. So there's a lot of genetics out there. There was some work done by um, colleagues at the USDA um, not too long ago, maybe about 10-ish years ago, and they asked this question, and, and what the geneticists like to ask is, is there a bottleneck, right? So is there a point, you can imagine like a, um, 
like a bottle of, of wine, right? It has a kind of the neck that narrows down. Is there a point at which the broader genetics get narrowed down to just a few genetics? And therefore, for breeding purposes, you're kind of running out of new things that you can find you need to select for, um, you know, uh, genes that are going to be for disease resistance or for uh, changing the flowering time. And so in Malus domestica, the domesticated apple, they've actually done a bunch of studies and said, no, there, there's actually a lot of genetics out there that are unexploited. And so we do not have a, a genetic bottleneck for, for apple breeding. And so there's still a lot of possibility for what can come in the future for new apples for both fresh eating purposes and for cider making. There are so many different apples out there, each with its own unique traits. Maybe these diverse genetic codes contain the information we need to ensure the future of apples in a changing climate. Earlier in the season, we heard from Evelyn Ferretti. By combing through the archives of Cornell's Mann Library, Evelyn partnered with Greg Peck to dig into the past. Using historical botanical drawings and writings from the U.S. and Great Britain, they were able to identify various types of apples that may have fallen out of favor. Many apples have been lost to history, but some genetics still remain. Greg worked with growers to correctly name and catalog where these older varieties may still be growing. This archival work serves a purpose in the agricultural world as well as academia. Within the genetic code of these historic apples may lie traits that can make commercially grown apples more resilient to climate change. They are the survivors, and right now there are a lot of threats to apple trees. I asked Greg about this. So I know last time we were here, you were talking a little bit about the research you were doing into both genetics and growing techniques to help apple trees be more resilient to fluctuating weather, et cetera. Um, so again, can you just sort of break down for us, like, what are you looking at when you're looking at plant resilience to fungus and you know, all the things that I can come across um, <laughs> and how maybe both sort of... All right, clearly you're here for a whole semester. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so the class I teach will start January. So, um, yeah, uh, the, 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 we love apples, right? You know, I know you guys do because that's what you're geeking out here about and... Obviously, like I have a whole career based on apples, so I'm a huge apple geek. And um, but people love apples and love to eat apples. They're grown throughout the world. And um, the flip side of that is that there's a lot of diseases and a lot of insects that also like to eat apples. And uh, many of those are um, endemic in our area here, or some are introduced in our area here. And um, so we often say there's probably about um, um, five to eight major uh, pathogens that we deal with and probably a dozen, 15 arthropods, insect types of pests that we have to deal with for apple production on an annual basis. So it's pretty complex. The pest complex, we'd say, for apples is is pretty large. 
and um, for that reason require, you know, um, to get to supermarket quality apples, right? Apples without a blemish, without any sort of uh, disease evidence on it. It requires a, um, a fairly consistent spray schedule throughout the growing season. Climate change makes everything more difficult, um, you know, period. And for our region, what we're um, projected to have is more extremes. So we had um, 2020, two years ago, we were in drought conditions and growers were worried about irrigating their trees enough and being able to size up the crop or even for young orchards, being able to water them enough so that the trees didn't die. 2021, just a year later, we've had so much rain that growers are worried about getting water out of their soils, uh, using drain lines, worried about having root rot issues in their trees. Um, it's, be, you know, for our climate and our region, it's having to manage both ends of the extremes, right? Because the, the middle is, is less and less. Uh, what we see in any given year. And so we had multiple uh, uh, precipitation events this summer, summer of 21, that were over two and sometimes even three or more inches. And so those are storms that should be once every 10 to 20 year storms and we're getting them multiple times within a season. And so that, that you know, it's, um, you know, what does that mean? Uh, how do we translate? Okay, so we have these extremes, we're having these uh, more drastic weather events. Um, well, from a disease management perspective, it means more disease, right? So a lot of these plant pathogens require um, what we call the disease triangle, right? The presence of a susceptible host, the presence of the pathogen, and then third, the um, proper environmental conditions, which for most of the pathogens that we're worried about is uh, wet, humid weather and uh, warmer temperatures, right? And so that's what we had this past year. So, um, so that's one thing is that the diseases are doing well, right? This is really great conditions for them this past year when it was really wet. It also means that when we apply fungicides to our orchards, that they get washed off more frequently. So after about an inch, sometimes two inches of rain, we have to reapply fungicides because they're no longer on the tree, no longer protecting the tree. So it means more fungicide applications to protect against an ever increasing um, amount of, of fungal pathogen or fungal inoculum that is in the orchard. So um, yeah, I don't think, I can't think of another year in my career where we had to spray as much as this year. And, um, and that's both our conventional and, and I do organic research as well and organically managed plots as well. While the Northeast is seeing unprecedented storms, different regions of the U.S. face their own distinct climate change-related challenges. So our region, as I mentioned, is, is going to be one of extremes, more, more moisture and more drought. And we're going to probably see those both happening at greater frequency. In other parts of the country, for example, in um, the uh, central part of Washington state, which is where the primary apple growing region is, they had to suffer through extreme heat this summer and fires, right? So they're dealing with a lot of um, uh, extreme in one direction. And so um, they're seeing a lot more physiological damage to the fruit 
Fruit actually can, with enough heat and UV radiation, they can get sunburned just like we can get sunburned and damage the fruit, make it unsellable. And um, yeah, there were multiple times when colleagues, you know, just in terms of like the human interaction of, of climate change, couldn't go to their research sites because of fire. You know, they were being evacuated. Um, smoke is a health hazard, right? And so these are um, more and more so, you know, I think the, the climate change science, and I'm not a climatologist, it's not my wheelhouse, but I read this material and talk to a lot of people. And, and I think the climate science has really started to turn a corner where it's been able to link a lot of these extreme events, whether it's um, extreme weather or the fire danger, back to climate change directly. So intuitively, I think many of us thought like, yeah, this is this is what's going on. And now the data is is very solid to show this as well. Um, so while apples are grown throughout the world, they're going to face different challenges in different parts of the world related to climate change. And, and what are the big ones? It's going to be precipitation and temperature. And then um, we talked about how it would affect perhaps like disease management. But a big one that we're also seeing is in the springtime is frost damage. So um, apple trees form flower buds the previous summer for blooming in the springtime. And so they're spring blooming deciduous plants. So in the springtime, we typically can get temperatures that will drop below freezing and that can um, damage flowers. But usually apples bloom after that happens. With climate change and warmer winters, the apples are accumulating enough growing degree hours, right? Which will start their phenology or start them pushing towards bloom earlier. So earlier bloom means that they're more likely to encounter a frost event. And the frost event will kill the flowers and thus no fruit. So spring frost is one of the biggest issues for apple growers, um, probably around the world, related to climate change. We raised these issues with cider maker and farmer Eric Schott from Redbird. In contrast to Greg's response to rain and fungal growth using chemical intervention, Redbird is an organic and biodynamic farm, and they approach these challenges differently. Kind of the way I think about it, and I think this is true with agriculture, but also probably with a lot of things, is um, you have to just continuously be kind of moving and changing. And if an apple tree gets overwhelmed with fungal pathogens on its leaves and it can't fight it off and the leaves drop, then the tree is in, in harm. You know, it's in harm of not being able to, um, you know, make it through the winter, not being able to, you know, uh, strengthen itself to go into the winter. So um, what I've noticed in our orchard with our low management style, which I think has its benefits, there are some varieties that are faring much better than others right now. And so as, you know, the climate change that most people in this area are talking about is more rain and more like excessive rain, like dumpings of like five inches of rain, you know, like that kind of situation. So for us in New York, organic apple growers, um, we need to shift to growing trees that have um, more resistance to fungal pathogens. And I think that that's 
again, it's so it's selecting. So like, you know, this orchard here that's 10 years old, maybe there's, um, you know, it's over 100 apple varieties, but maybe there's 10 that are superior. And so we need to plant more of those. And and even more so, I really feel like um, breeding is a key component for combating this type of climate change. Breeding and genetics are the point on which organic and conventional farmers can see eye to eye. Both Professor Greg Peck and cider maker Eric see the importance of understanding and utilizing historical genetics and seeing this as essential to the healthy future of apple trees. Eric and his wife and business partner, Deva Moss, work with a network of other like-minded cider makers that are working together to ensure a fruitful future. Yeah, I think, well, like like us as growers, again, like the, you know, whatever there are, half dozen, you know, six, seven, eight of us specific cider apple growers organically minded in the Finger Lakes region, you know, we communicate with each other and share ideas and share experiences. And I think that is, that's super, super valuable because we can learn from each other's mistakes, essentially. <laughs> and, and, um, and also, <clears throat> yeah, if, if like with the breeding thing, if we can, if we can find these varieties, we can share them with each other and move on from there. The farm becomes its own research lab in the pursuit of shaping the future of cider. We have a big crop this year that we just harvested. I, I really want to harvest a bunch of the seeds from the varieties that are handling this climate change better. I want to plant those seedlings and grow them out and evaluate them. And generally speaking, all of them can be thrown into the cider mix. You know, there might be a few that are just super early in the season or who knows what, maybe they get fire blight or there's some trees that might just not make it. But it's my experience that like literally seven out of 10 seedling trees from varieties that already make good cider can be used in a cider plant. The main takeaway is that diversity, specifically in this case, biodiversity is the only way forward. Conventional commercial farming is reliant on monoculture, growing single varieties and even clones. This means that with a changing climate, our food system is in immediate danger of being hit with pathogens that could wipe out entire crops. This has to change. The flexibility and creativity of holistic growers allows for change and longevity. Yeah, we're, we, we did not put all our eggs in one basket. Mm. Does horticulture hold some of the solutions to these issues? To a certain extent, yes. By understanding the history of different varieties of apples and applying their genetic strengths, we can grow more resilient trees. But there is not a one-size-fits-all solution to this complex and, frankly, overwhelming issue. <laughs> I don't have the answer. I no, wish I did. <laughs> I, 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 um, yeah, no, I mean... Um, Boy, awareness and education, right? That's my, um, that's my wheelhouse. That's you know, um, and I think uh, making sure that we're um, getting information out there and getting people understanding that climate change is happening. I would say one of the things that's 
Um, I think we've, we've seen some literature to back this up, but certainly anecdotally that I've seen in my career are with a lot of the farmers, which, you know, a lot of farmers typically are on the more conservative end of the political spectrum. And climate change was something in my early part of my career that you just didn't talk about without getting eye rolls or like, why is he talking about this? And, um, and that's certainly changed. And because farmers are on the front lines, right? They're experiencing, they, they have to grow crops based on the weather and, um, and they're noticing the weather changing, right? And that becomes climate. And so, um, for example, when I brought our summer undergraduate interns around to visit some farmers this summer, and without any prompting from me, they all talked about climate change. And, um, and from people that I wouldn't necessarily have expected to bring this up as an important topic. But because they're seeing it, they're feeling it in their bank accounts, and, um, and you know, for them, it's, it's not just a political issue, but it's become a livelihood issue. And so I think it does change, right? And as people experience it. Um, but I think, I don't know, my personal opinion is you have to keep talking about it and you have to keep normalizing it, right? You have to make it part of the conversation and not shy away from it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen on the policy side. There's a lot of things that can happen on the agricultural side for improvement. Um, if you look at the climate models, there's no going back at this point. It's a matter of how severe climate change is going to be, right? There's no um, putting all that carbon back in the soil, at least not under current known technologies that are um, out there. So we're going to have to live with it for the foreseeable future. And, and I think, you know, from a carbon emission standpoint, it's a matter of, um, you know, can we lessen the impact of climate change? And then how do we, um, how do we adapt to it? How do we change what we're growing, where we're growing it? How do we change our uh, farming practices? Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's a big, important question to ask. <laughs> Questions still prevail, but biodiversity and an open exchange of knowledge and ideas can make apples and the folks who grow them more resilient in an uncertain future. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, Cam Hill comes back to talk about how Indigenous traditions and perspectives can help us to navigate a changing climate. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. 
Get started at visitithica.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tahona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best tasting, highest quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced, with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their Añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome back to Hardcore. Today, we're talking about the future of cider. Now let's turn to Cam Hill. We met Cam in our previous episode. He is a member of the Gitgaat Nation, native to what is now British Columbia in Canada. We learned about the history and significance of crab apples in Indigenous culture and cuisine. It's pretty clear that our colonial capitalist system is what got us into this mess that is climate change. So it's time for an alternative perspective. We need to preserve everything that we have and and to understand that just because it's there doesn't mean we need to harvest it. We need to harvest what we need. And we also don't want to make... Money, the almighty dollar, always seems to uh, convolute our thinking. Um, We are all about trade. Um, There are certain things that we don't get within our territory um, that we might be able to trade crab apples for, or we might be able to trade seaweed for, or or many of the things that we catch uh, or harvest within our territory. So that thinking that my grandmother and my father uh, and my family bestowed onto me, I, I take it to heart and I make sure that my family is, uh, is, is going to uh, follow those techniques and follow those harvesting procedures. And I also bring it into our school to make sure that the youth within our community um, not only get out to go and harvest many of the things that we have, but to also have that thinking that, yes, it's there and we can harvest it, but always remember to take what you need and use what you take. As exciting as genetics and scientific innovation are, like Greg said, there's no one technology that offers a silver bullet. Fighting the climate crisis, it may be tempting to find new plants and genetics that can solve our problems. But Cam offers a perspective on the importance of preserving what we already have. We asked Cam to talk a bit about climate change and how it is impacting his community in British Columbia's Hartley Bay. It's kind of a, a, a scary topic, but you combine industry with uh, the climate change, it's a real uphill battle for us as uh, the Gitgat Nation and, and the people that live and reside here because, uh, again, you know, what once money and, and industry and, and government get thrown into the mix and uh, 
nine times out of ten, it goes sideways, and uh, we're left holding the bag. You know, the crab apples within our territory have have been here forever, um, and obviously they've they've thrived and uh, and and been a form of sustenance to to the Gitgat people for um, since the beginning of time. And uh, you know, how are we as as not only uh, the Gitgat nation, but how are we as as mankind um, going to try and protect something like this? It's a daunting task uh, to be truthful and honest. Um, I I really don't uh, have too much insight other than to try and obviously make sure that uh, the trees are still there uh, to try and protect them in in some way, shape or form. Maybe tap into uh, local knowledge or or anybody that's in the uh, botanical field to to maybe talk about or, or, or get some ideas on maybe transplanting them in, into certain areas. For Cam, the threat that climate change poses to apple trees goes beyond the commercial. Crab apples and so many other native plants and animals play a crucial role in native culture, as well as their indigenous ecosystems. We're really looking to, to try and find some ideas as to how to make the crab apples that we have had within our territory for so long last. And I, I think it's going to be a real uphill battle, but we're open to, uh, to new ideas to, to try and find out how to do that and, and make that happen. I think to put it in as simple terms as I can and, uh, and not to overplay the phrase that I, that I keep saying, um, take what you need and use what you take. I, I think if, uh, if, if the rest of the world um, was able to live by those standards, I think we would be in a lot better shape uh, than what we are right now. First Nations communities all over the world, let alone BC and Canada, have been governing their territories through a hereditary system and lifestyle and living by that statement that I, that I keep referring to. Um, they are the stewards of the land. First Nations people have been have been doing it since the beginning of time and and have been so successful at it. But um, uh, since uh, the onset of, uh, you know, um, industry, um, cities, um, overpopulations, things of that nature, that that's when things kind of go sideways. And uh, we uh, have a real hard time in, in trying to look after uh, what we have. The first half of our episode is a little heavy. Climate change is bringing rain, fungus, drought, fire, and more to apple growers around the country. Now, more than ever, flexibility and diversity are the name of the game. Apples are remarkably resilient, and they have been thriving here in extreme weather and changing landscapes for centuries. But things are changing. And the apples that were able to thrive in a changing climate may look and taste different than what we're accustomed to. So how will the future shape the ciders we drink? That flexibility has been key to cider success over the past decade or so. Dan Pucci has been at the forefront of cider's growth. 
Even since Hardcore's first season, cider has gained traction, earning its rightful place on menus beside beer and wine. Embracing its agricultural roots has been especially useful. I was thinking about like what kind of cider baggage people are, are bringing when they approach a beverage. And it's only changed in the last few years, especially since season one here, I would say. Um, I think here in the Northeast, COVID over the last few years has definitely um, strengthened local tourism. I'm in the Hudson Valley and we've seen a lot of new ciders open up in the Hudson Valley um, that have focused on direct consumer sales through tap rooms or whatnot. And people are really excited about that and people approach those products and those experiences in a very different way than they would have approached. In years past, they would have approached those products in the same context, so they would have approached a more mass market product. But now they're approaching it as an agricultural experience here and are tying it more to the farm and it's being linked in a really unique way. Just as we heard about farmers supporting one another in the cider industry, communal support across the beverage world has made cider's growth more successful than ever. The other big thing in terms of context that's happened is the larger expansion of cider in the natural wine community and the natural wine community expansion into cider. This has been a big thing in California um, where we've had a, a lot of pretty horrible harvests the last few years and a lot of natural winemakers uh, or natural-ish winemakers embracing alternative fermentation products like cider as part of their portfolio. And people are making products that are interesting experimental with interesting cool co-ferments and things like that with grapes and other fruits that are really cool and they're finding an audience that's like ready to embrace that. That's not something that we're seeing here in upstate New York and in Northeast a little bit more so, but out West it's definitely been, in California especially, it's definitely been the new trend. Um, And they're really delicious and really, really cool. This spirit of collaboration is one of the many qualities that make cider unique and keeps the industry constantly evolving. Following in the footsteps of wine and craft beer, cider is finally being embraced by culinary leaders. Chefs in cider regions celebrate the beverage by turning towards its versatility and ability to complement local cuisine. During our visit to Ithaca, Dylan and I had the pleasure of meeting Chef Patrick Blackman. We visited him at Cultivare, a farm-to-bistro restaurant. He was in the midst of hosting a cider dinner. The menu was carefully crafted to highlight the flavors of autumn and the delicious local ciders. After moving to the Finger Lakes area, he got to know cider. Although he received a comprehensive education on wine during his studies at the Culinary Institute of America, his exploration of cider was something new. When I moved up here and I saw you know, a lot of people like selling various different types of ciders, I'm like, holy cow, they're using these apples, you know? So I think it's pretty cool that, you know, in a specific area, you can find people using the local product. And depending on what your palate style is, you can go out and buy it and still be able to support local, no matter which one you like or don't like or whatever. Like, you're going to probably buy something. So from a consumer standpoint... I thought that that was pretty awesome. And from a culinary standpoint, I think that that allows a lot of flexibility for a lot of the restaurants to be able to not only sell the cider, but make a pairing with it, you know, for a special appetizer or even an entree if you're like really creative and something like that. Um, To be able to like push the envelope for yourself and being able to support local. 
The possibilities for cider are endless. While we're at a frightening moment looking at a warming climate and an uncertain future, if there's one thing that we can learn from cider, it is that a shift in perspective is a powerful thing. What I've realized making this season of Hardcore is the impact that individuals can have in shifting not just the ways we eat and drink, but the ways that communities are shaped. The folks we spoke with in Ithaca showed how the micro can shape the macro. In the first episode, Kristen Nunez laid out Quarter Acre for the People's plans to broaden access to land and farming amongst folks of color. And white cider makers came together to spread awareness and raise funds to provide reparations for Black folks in their community. Gregory Peck and Evelyn Ferretti are combing through botanical illustrations and descriptions from previous centuries in order to better understand the genetic potential of apples. All of this work, while maybe small in scale, shows how passionate people can change the world around them. Over the past decade, cider has come back after nearly a century of being out of fashion. This reinvention allows the industry to both embrace ancestral history and forge a new path for an unknown future. There's a lesson here. As we gather around the table more and more, let's pass the bottle, break bread, and listen to the voices that compose our communities. Big or small, we can make a difference. Hardcore is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden. This episode was engineered by Michael Edwin with additional engineering by Matt Patterson. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening. 